Uh, thankful for you mothers. Thanks for being here this morning. If you're regular or if you're a guest, if you're a member, obviously we um, wish you a happy Mother's Day. And also if you're a guest with us, the same. Um, if you would uh, consider picking up a free copy of the Grace Marriage book that's just come out, um, came out uh, last week. We've made 30 or so copies available. Most of them are gone, but I think if you run quickly after the service or maybe run a kid to the bathroom and grab one, you will, uh, you'll be able to get one before they're all gone. Um, but I hope you enjoy that as our gift, um, to you and, and, uh, if your husband is still alive to your marriage as well. So we're back in 1 Samuel 24 through 26 after about seven weeks in the Psalms where we considered David's prayers that he prayed during this period of time where Saul was in hot pursuit of him. So we return to the narrative this morning in 1 Samuel. We've got three more sermons before we conclude 1 Samuel uh, for this uh, time. We'll be in 1 Samuel 24 to 26 this morning and then 27 and 28, Lord willing, next week. And then we'll finish out the book at the end of May in chapters 29 through 31. Well, there is a now famous test that I think many of you have no doubt heard about that was done in the 1970s that has come to be called the Stanford Marshmallow Test. It was a, the participants were about 32 children and they were all between the ages of about three to five. The children were each led into a room and empty of all distractions, there was a treat of their choice placed on the table, either two animal crackers or five pretzel sticks. Uh, the researchers told each of the children that they could eat a treat, but if they waited 15 minutes without eating anything, then they would be remo- rewarded with a second treat. Then the researchers left the room and they watched through a camera. Now, no doubt you have heard or can imagine what would happen. Some kids immediately grabbed the treats and just gobbled them down. The kids who chose to wait developed all kinds of coping strategies. Some kids just covered their eyes with their hands so they wouldn't see the treats. Uh, That's a good idea. Some got up and walked around the room. Some avoided making eye contact with the treat. One kid even got down and licked the table beside the treat as if somehow the treat had transmogrified into the wood. Or maybe he was trying to set his palate on a different course. Regardless, researchers track these children over the next three decades and found that the children who were able to wait had consistently better life outcomes and measured by things like SAT scores, educational attainment, physical health, marriage satisfaction, and a whole host of other things as well. The researchers concluded that after three decades, more than any other single factor they studied, the ability to delay gratification was the key to future success. Well, we don't necessarily need to be subjected to a research study to know that. No doubt if you've lived long enough, you know that to be the case in your own life. And if you have children, you've no doubt seen that in their case as well, or grandchildren. And of course, we know it from Scripture as well. In fact, the very first test that mankind experienced in the garden was a test of sorts and delayed gratification, wasn't it? Will we trust God or will we take the fruit now? Well, since then, there have been other larger studies done that have backed up not only what we know by experience, but also what we know from Scripture. One New Zealand study done on more than a 1,000 kids over the course of 40 years 
concluded that the one factor that mattered more than any other on a child's future health, material wealth, relational harmony, was all what? Impulse control. It was more significant than your social class you were born into. It's more significant than the wealth of your family. It's more significant than your IQ. The ability to control your impulses. Well, in these chapters this morning, David's going to get three tests in impulse control. Impulse control concerning revenge. Impulse control concerning taking matters into his own hands. He's going to face three tests in the wilderness. One in each chapter. Chapter 24 is one. Chapter 25 is one. Chapter 26 is one. And this three-part wilderness test, as we've already thought about, takes us back to the Garden of Eden, where the first Adam was tested, but it also takes us to the testing of Israel in the wilderness. And we know the results of both of those tests. Adam failed, Israel failed. The question is, will David fail? There's a single thread that unites all three of these tests in chapters 24, 25, and 26, which is similar in some ways to both Adam and to Israel. The key single thread that moves across all three tests is, will David take matters into his own hands, or will he continue to place his life in God's hands? What sorts of things push David in one direction or another? And what kinds of things would push us in one direction or the other? Either taking matters into our own hands when life gets difficult or putting those matters in God's hands and trusting him with the outcomes. So we're going to look at each of those three tests this morning. And I'm using the image of a road. We've all heard that we're supposed to take the take various kinds of roads, right? Do we take the easy road or do you take the low road or do you take the high road? Well, I'm going to explain what each one of those mean if you need a refresher on that. But those are the three roads that David's going to be uh, tested and tempted to take this morning. Will he take the easy road? Will he take the high road? Will he take the low road? Let's dive in this morning with the first test in chapter 24. Test number one, will we take the easy road? Now, by the easy road, I want to define it like this. It's the road that's often least traveled or I should say it's often most traveled because it's the easiest. It's not requiring that much labor. It doesn't require that much effort. It's not difficult. It's simple. The easy road. Jesus spoke of it in Matthew 7, the the broad way that leads to death, right? It's the, the easy one, the easy way to take. Well, what would be the easy road that David would be tempted to take in uh, 1 Samuel 24? Well, it would be to kill Saul. That's the easy road. Saul is after David, this time with 3,000 men, we're told at the beginning of the chapter. He comes into the very cave that David is hiding in, not realizing that David is in the cave. And David's men do what? They encourage him. David, here's your chance. God is opening the door for you. Kill Saul. Let's be done with this. David creeps up and cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. Now, as king, his robe likely would have been long enough, no doubt, but perhaps he had taken it off because he had originally gone into the cave, the ESV cleans it up a little bit, to relieve himself, that is, to cover his feet, literally in Hebrew, likely a euphemism for number two. 
He's going in to relieve himself. And no doubt he would drop his robe significantly and it would be spread out over the... Or if he'd take it off, he maybe had an outer robe and would put it off to avoid any kind of contact with any matter that he might not want to get on there. So the likelihood of Saul noticing what David does is highly unlikely. It's not like David sneaks up on him within inches and cuts off a corner of his robe where Saul could actually feel his breath on him. That's not the case. Saul doesn't even know it's missing. So notice David's response in verses 5 and 6. Afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he's the Lord's anointed. Why is David so conscience-stricken about cutting off the corner of Saul's robe? Well, obviously it symbolizes something of what his men had encouraged him to do, which is take Saul's own life. But I think we have a, a, a deeper answer than even that, considering all that is spoken about in 1 Samuel of Saul's robe already. If you remember back in chapter 15, when Samuel informed Saul that his kingdom would be torn away from him and given to another, you remember how Saul responded? Chapter 15, verse 28, as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore The next time this robe appears is in chapter 18, verse 4, when Saul's son Jonathan offers his robe to David as a sign of his loyalty to David's coming kingship. We read in chapter 18, verse 4, And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And in chapter 20, Jonathan makes a strong request of David. He says, Do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever. In other words... Show the same loyalty, David, to my family as I am showing to you. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. So in this chapter, by cutting off a corner of Saul's robe, no doubt Jonathan's words would be ringing in David's ears. David is essentially keeping his oath to Jonathan. While David cuts off the corner of Saul's robe, he does not cut off Saul himself. He refuses to grab the kingdom by force. Rather, he will wait on God to give him the kingdom as promised. As a response to the request of his men, David persuades his men and does not permit them to attack Saul. We read in verse 7, So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. The word is literally, he tore into his men. He tore them apart. It's a play on words of what just happened. He tore a strip off his men for suggesting that he tear away the kingdom from Saul. The whole scene is rich with symbolism. Now this doesn't mean that David's unwilling to talk to Saul about what he is doing. We see this in the latter part of the chapter. Saul's exiting the cave And while Saul is at a safe distance, David goes right after him. Look at verse 8 of chapter 24. Afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the King! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks you harm? David is gracious, even in his confrontation. He's giving Saul the opportunity to back down while saving face. David has no ill will towards Saul. Look at verse 10. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. 
And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, he is his father-in-law. See the corner of your robe is in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know, you may now see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. David's no threat to Saul. He makes that abundantly clear to him. Saul, in response, is broken, at least temporarily, by David's words. We read in verse 16, Saul's response. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put you into my hands, into your, put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you're surely, you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Saul acknowledges reality. He acknowledges the fact that what David has done is very uncharacteristic of most normal men and that the fact is that David will be king in his place. Now, what's the lesson that we learn from David's interaction with Saul here? I want you to think about what David's men said to him. God is giving you into, God is giving Saul into your hand. How many of us would see a similar thing as God's good providence toward us. When in fact all it is is fortuitous coincidence. Fortuitous coincidences like the one where Saul comes into the very cave. That David is hiding in. Is not always a sign that God is behind something. It's amazing how we can justify our behavior through some sort of coincidence. Now I'm not saying there's coincidence in providence. All things are providence. All things are ordained by God, but not all things are ordained in such a way as we determine the response to them based on the way God leads in his providence. What do I mean? Well, some may be tempted to think, well, my current marriage isn't working and I meet this new guy at work who's just perfect and it all just feels so coincidental. It it feels like it's just meant to be. Or I really wanted that car and it unexpectedly dropped in price and then I got approved for a loan and I just feel like God's given me a sign that he wants me to have that car. Now I know that taking out that loan is going to put me in really, really significant debt and it's going to make me car poor and eliminate any possibility for me to be generous, but why else would all these circumstances so randomly happen? Now I'm not saying that God never uses such things to direct us. But we must not conclude that just because God has providentially brought something into our path that it necessarily entails what we think it entails. Sometimes coincidences are just that. Coincidences. They're nothing more than that. One pastor I read this week had a humorous take on such occasions. He said that when he was driving one day, he had about, uh, he was driving on a road and he was with his 12 year old son. And he was preparing to make a significant decision. And on that afternoon as they were driving uh, and they pulled into their driveway, the father looks up and notices that seven doves just flew directly over the car. 
And the dad responds out loud to his son. Son, look. One, two, three, four, five, seven. Seven. Seven doves. Son, a dove is what descended on Jesus at his baptism. And seven is God's number of completion. There's our answer. The Lord is leading us. And the son said, Dad, I think those are pigeons. To which the dad responded, and with a closed heart like that, son, you will never hear the voice of God. (laughs) Now again, I'm not saying that God never uses coincidences or circumstances to guide us, but sometimes doves are just doves and sometimes doves are pigeons. God's not the only one who arranges lucky circumstances in your life, is he? You don't think Satan does that too? Satan is tempting David here to take matters into his own hands, and he even uses Scripture to do it. Did you see how David's men quoted Scripture in verse 4 to urge David to kill Saul? This is how Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. It's how Jesus tempt, or Satan tempted Adam in the garden. Satan loves to use the Bible to get us to do what is forbidden by the Bible. Satan said to Jesus in the wilderness, I can give it all to you right now if you just take this little shortcut. You don't have to go through the cross. You don't have to go through that mess of suffering. You can have it all right now. Don't wait on God to give you this. Go get it for yourself right now. You're the son of God. You have a right to this. That's what Satan does. He starts with the truth. He holds up something that God wants you to have, and then he urges you to step outside of God's will to get it and take a shortcut. In the Garden of Eden, Satan said, God wants you to be happy and to have God-like wisdom. In a sense, that's true. But then he said, to get there, I'm going to show you a shortcut. Eat this forbidden fruit. So it's easy in these kinds of situations to compromise our convictions. You think God's not delivering as he said he would, so I'll just take matters into my own hands. Think of what happened with Abraham. What did Satan proverbially mention to him? God has promised you to make you a father, to give you a great nation from your offspring, and that was true. But then he said, but you're childless. Sarah's old. So have a kid with your servant Hagar. So step outside of God's will, take a shortcut. He'll understand. The easy road is so much more attractive, isn't it? You're not married yet. God hasn't brought along a partner for you, so you date someone you know you shouldn't be because you figure that's better than being alone. Financially, you're not where you want to be, so you overwork, you cut out generosity. God's not moving fast enough on your timetable, so you take matters into your own hands. How easy would it have been for David to take the easy road? Saul was using his power to abuse and manipulate David. God had promised David the throne. Couldn't David have just acted out of self-defense? Killing Saul would have solved so many problems. David's men urged him to settle the score. And they felt right about doing that. Because revenge almost always feels justified on one level. It's so easy to respond with evil for evil. Which is why we have to be commanded to to respond with good. Think about a wife that doesn't respect her husband. So the husband justifies cheating on her. Or the boss that's particularly mean well maybe i'll do some sloppy work and find ways to undermine him maybe steal from the company because you feel entitled to it you brag to your friends about it 
Or maybe people are uncharitable with your motives on Facebook or social media, and so you feel you can be uncharitable with theirs. Or you cheat on your taxes because we know the government absolutely mishandles money. These all feel justified because of the wrong we've endured. David knows, and we must too, that we will achieve the purpose of God by breaking the commandments of God, right? No. No matter how bad Saul is, David recognizes Saul is the appointed king, and these are God's appointed circumstances, and it's not for me to take matters into my own hands. When life takes an unexpected turn, we have a choice. We can take matters into our own hands, or we can do things God's way and wait on him to fulfill his promises. Dear ones, let's not succumb to the temptation to take the easy road. In the end, it's not easy. That's the first test. Will will we take the easy road? Second test, test number two. Will we take the high road? Will we take the high road? Well, taking the high road, by that I mean that we behave in a moral way when other people around us are not behaving morally. We take the high road. We take the road that the other people around us should be taking, but they aren't taking. So in chapter 25, David and his men have been protecting the flocks of a man named Nabal. And it's shearing time. And David requests that Nabal be generous to him in light of David's hard work on Nabal's behalf. And we read Nabal's response in chapter 25, verses 10 and 11. Let me just review that briefly. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their master. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers? Notice how eaten up with me, my, I, I am. And give it to men who come from I don't know where. So not only does Nabal show ingratitude, but he takes a cheap shot at David. David's just another runaway slave. Let me give you an illustration of what this might feel like. Imagine you're a waiter, and some of you have been this waiter, and I'm so sorry. But imagine you're a waiter at a really nice restaurant, and some large party comes in. They rent a private room, and you and a couple of runners are assigned responsibility for them. And they are there for like five hours until after midnight, and you and your team give them excellent, conscientious service the entire time, really busting your hump to take care of their needs and make sure they have everything that they need. Well, then the bill comes, and it's several thousand dollars, and the guy disputes several items, and as a result, leaves no tip. And you're like, sir, I think you forgot to fill out the tip portion. And he says, quit begging for my money. The only reason you're a waiter is because you flunked out of school and you can't get a real job. Get out of my face. Well, I'm guessing if that's you, you're going to be less than happy on a number of levels. Maybe angry. Well, friends, that's exactly what happened to David. Just on a much larger scale. With him and all of his men over the course of a year's salary, not just a night's work. Nabal turns him away after a year of work and says, go your way. I don't owe you a thing. 
So at one level, we can understand why David responds the way he does. Look at verse 12 of chapter 25. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said, every man strap on his sword. (laughs) Get your sword. We're, We're wiping out this entire family. And notice, just as much as it says of Nabal in verse 11, I, my, my, I, my. Notice the four uses of the word sword in verses 13 and 14, or 13. David said to his men, every man strap on his sword, and every man then strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. So remember, David has 600 guys with him at this time. Two-thirds of them go with David to wipe out this family for their ingratitude. David's ready to kill him. David's ready to take some matters into his own hands. David's done with this ingratitude stuff, especially after a year of work. Now, when someone does something rude to you in traffic, pulls into your lane, runs up on your bumper, and then has the audacity to somehow act like it's your fault, then lay on the horn, and then zoom by you, all the while telling you that you're number one? Do you just instinctively roll down the window and say, bless you, my friend? No, our instinct is to respond with unkindness, right? Get all up on them at that next light. Or maybe you have a friend who's so self-absorbed and insensitive to your needs that you respond by being aloof and distant from them. Or maybe you have a boss that's a jerk and you respond by taking a little more time off than would be justified. Or maybe your spouse is rude and insensitive and so you give them the cold shoulder and start acting pretty petty with them. Or some family member lets you down or makes you mad so you blow up and scream at them. This is all the kind of stuff that David would be dealing with as he's tempted to not take the high road, to not be wronged. Well, someone steps in to bring David back to a measure of sanity, and it's Nabal's wife, Abigail, who overhears David interacting with his men and rushes to David with gifts. She gets there just in time, but David is determined to kill Nabal and his men for his ingratitude and his lack of generosity in light of David's protection. I think of something that happened with Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill had a long-standing feud with a lady of the English nobility named Lady Astor. And their interactions are quite humorous. I want to share one of them with you. Their long-standing acrimony was so bad, and this is not a joke, that people would never invite them to the same party because for sure, like vinegar and baking soda, some blow-up was bound to happen. In fact, well, sure enough, someone invited them to the same party both Winston Churchill and Lady Astor. And over dinner, Churchill and this lady got into an argument and Lady Astor shouted, if I were your wife, Winston, I would poison your coffee. To which Churchill replied, and if I were your husband, madam, I would drink it. (laughs) Churchill has plenty of those. Once Lady Astor was throwing a costume ball and she had to invite Churchill, she had to invite him. It was not willingly, since he was the prime minister. 
but she didn't want to. And when Churchill accepted the invitation, he asked her what costume he might wear so that no one might recognize him since he didn't want to be seen at her house. And she responded that if he came sober, then no one would recognize him. (laughs) To which he responded, yes, but you were ugly and in the morning I'll be sober. (laughs) It's so easy, isn't it? To return evil for evil like that. So when Abigail reaches David, she implores him to listen to her. Look at what Abigail says to David in verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, which means fool, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Verse 26, now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to be my Lord, uh, to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. Now, after her speech, she gives David the gifts her husband should have given him and affirms him in his coming kingship. And the summary comes in verses 30. And 31, where we read, And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, this is again Abigail speaking to David, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. One day he says, She says to David, you're going to come to the throne, David, and you don't want this on your conscience. This is personal vengeance. This is not some king responsibility. This is you being miffed that you didn't get what you deserved personally. So Abigail says, one day when you come to the throne, you're going to have to tell the story of how you got to the throne. And on that day, David, when you're telling your grandkids the story of how God put you on the throne, do you want to have to mention a chapter in that story where you were insulted by a nobody and killed a bunch of innocent people in response? Are you going to let a fool get the best of you? Don't become a Nabal, David. Don't be a fool like my husband. That's actually great counsel, isn't it? One day your life will be told as a story to the next generation. Kids, I know you're young, life is up, everything's ahead of you. But one day, Lord willing, if you have life, you're going to have grandchildren. I know it's hard to think about, but look at your grandparents. They were young once. And you're going to tell the story of your life to them. Are you living now in a way that you'll be proud of how, it was, how it's going to be told then? We need impulse control to get there, don't we? We need to put matters in God's hands and not take matters in our own hands if we want a good story to tell. Because we'll either have God's story to tell or we'll have our story to tell. And I'd much rather tell God's story than my story. Now, Abigail's intervention does save the situation temporarily. David praises God for her. I love how this story rather subtly challenges our stereotypes, doesn't it? Nabal is the man. 
but yet he's the weak and emotional one. And Abigail is the woman, and she's the calm and rational one. Dear ones, we need to blow this stereotype away in our lives. Women are just highly emotional. Women are not cool and calm and rational. Men are, men are strong. They don't have any emotions. You know who's emotional in all these chapters? The dudes. They're the ones that are losing it all the time. The women are saving their hides all the time, which is basically the Bible. Who's there at the resurrection? The women. Who's there to rescue the babies in Exodus? The women. This story challenges all of our stereotypes. Our society often assumes the opposite. Women are the irrational, emotional ones, and men are the calm, strong ones. But in this story, both David and Nabal are the ones consumed by their emotions, and Abigail is the only one who can keep her head. Ladies, God made you to be an Abigail. Some of the best chapters of human history, and for sure some of the most important chapters in church history, have been written by strong, wise, courageous women. Women who saved the day when the men around them were acting like fools. Ladies, you can be a wise woman even if you have a foolish husband, can't you? Abigail did. And she saved the life of her husband and children despite her bad marriage. And just as he did with Abigail, God has you there, perhaps, to save the lives of those in your family. What's Nabal doing while all this is happening? Well, he's getting drunk. And when he sobers up, Abigail tells him what he's done or what she's done in his place, and his heart fails, and he dies ten days later. Look at verses 36 to 38. Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. God is able to take care of your issues. You don't think God was paying attention to what was happening to David that year while he was serving without pay? Yeah, and God took Nabal out. We sang it this morning, right? Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me. Foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. We look to God. Brothers, here's our application. And I'm sorry the text is particularly hard on us this morning. Sometimes the text is hard on ladies. Sometimes the text is hard on guys. Let's not be a Nabal. Let's not make our wife have to go behind our back to accomplish good and godly things for our family. Some of us need to sit in that for a while, maybe. Let's not make our wives be the ones that have to get our kids in church to honor God with our finances because we're living a life of foolishness. Lead in such a way that her wisdom complements yours. Take the high road. Test number three. Will we take the low road? Will we take the low road? Now, to take the low road means to utilize a method or practice or course of action that is unethical, unscrupulous, underhanded. It's to manipulate a situation, to do something base or vile 
unethical. Now, as we come into chapter 26, David is going to be tempted again, this time not to take the easy road, but to take the low road, to take an unethical path. Now, chapter 26 appears like a rerun of chapter 24. Saul's chasing David again. He finds himself again in a position to kill Saul, but he refrains, and again, Saul expresses remorse over his actions. It seems like a replay. However, in this scenario, there are a number of different details. First of all, it is David who comes upon Saul, not Saul upon David. And it's David who finds Saul and his men asleep, so David and one of his men, Abishai, sneak into the camp. Now notice chapter 26, verses 8 through 10. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. And once again, getting that counsel about coincidences. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of, his spear, of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put his hand against the Lord's anointed? Put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless. Verse 10, and David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die and he will go down into battle and perish. It's wise words from David. He's already seen it with Nabal, how the Lord defended him and protected him there. And he's acting again in a similar way here in chapter 26. How easy again it would have been for David to say, see, I knew Saul wasn't genuine. Saul's just engaging in pseudo-repentance Because he got caught before. Listen, if I don't end this now, it's just going to keep happening. He's not going to change. Because God is not delivering on our timetable, we can be tempted to start manipulating circumstances and forcing things to happen. If we're not content to wait on God's timing, we can be tempted to to manipulate situations or leverage different relationships to get what we want. Or we subtly tear someone else down so someone else will look more favorably on us. Or if someone won't do what we want, we try to coerce them or guilt them. If God's not moving fast enough in the life of our kids, we try to force it. In all these things, we're trying to compete in the power of the flesh. And we're trying to do what God can only accomplish by His Spirit. However, this is not what David does. These things are the opposite of what David did. He said, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. No matter how justified I feel in doing so, I will wait upon the Lord. I will do things his way. He's the one that made the promises. He's the shepherd to whom I've committed my soul. I'll wait upon him. And we see in verses 11 and 12 just that. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that's in his, that is at his head, the jar of water, let us go. So they take the spear from him, but they don't use the spear on him. Verse 12, so David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Again, the Lord acting for David. Now David speaks to Abner, Saul's army commander, who should have been protecting Saul. And Abner and David go back and forth in verses 13 to 16 and they, the shout awakens Saul from his slumber. And David again invites God to judge between them, much like he does in chapter 24. And David is happy to leave the justice with God and in his hands. Saul again is broken. He's repentant. He's contrite. He gives his blessing to David in verses 21 and 25. And David responds in verse 22 of chapter 26. And David answered and said, here's the spear, O king. Gives the spear back to him. Which makes me think that David's conscience again is bothering him. 
by taking that spear, David is not completely trusting the Lord. Now, he's not killing him with it, but David's not perfect. And his faith is not flawless. He's still giving in to these the struggle that he has with taking matters into his own hands. But he gives the spear back to Saul. It says, let one of the young men come over and take it. Verse 23, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Now, at the beginning of this sermon, I referenced the fact that David's testing in the wilderness is similar to both Adam's and Israel's. In fact, this account is very similar to Adam's temptation for one major reason. And this was fascinating. I didn't know this until preparing this week. Did you know one-third, one-third of the biblical uses of the word good and evil are used here in these chapters? 1 Samuel 24 to 26. One-third of the biblical uses of the word good and evil are used here in 1 Samuel 24 to 26, which should take us right back to the Garden of Eden. Know the difference between good and evil. See, it's as if David is presented as a new Adam in a wilderness, called to pass a different test. However, David is also recapitulating the story of Israel. Remember, Israel was tempted in the wilderness several times. Would they trust God for food? Would they trust God for water? Would they trust God against the invading armies? Would they trust God? Would they trust God? Would they trust God? Or would they take matters into their own hands? While David passes each test, I want you to see that there is one glaring area of concern in these chapters about David that that are the seeds of his downfall already embedded in the chapter. Let's read verses 39 to 42. Turn back to chapter 25 and look what's said about David here. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. But she's not the only wife David has. Look at verses 43 and 44. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who's of Galim. So what's going on here? Well, perhaps David is justifying the fact, well, I'm not married anymore. All right? Uh, Saul has taken Michal back. She's not my wife anymore. Um, So I'm free to marry. And he does. He marries Abigail, and he's not committing adultery with Abigail. Her husband's dead. But that's not the only wife David has. And that's not the only wife he's taken. That should send shivers down your spine if you were reading this story for the first time. Maybe he isn't the king We want, after all. Maybe he isn't the king we're looking for. Maybe he isn't the king who can save us from our enemies. Because he's guilty of the same kind of stuff that we are. His sexual sin is going to be his downfall. 
the Savior's imperfect. And therefore, David's not the Christ we are looking for, the anointed one. Which brings us to the most important dimension in this story, doesn't it? He's not the Savior. Who is? Well, what David goes through in the cave in the wilderness of En Gedi gives us a picture of the true Savior who is to come, the Son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, like David, Jesus was the anointed king. And like David, Jesus didn't receive that kingdom immediately. He had to wait. He had to suffer. He had to be disrespected. He had to be snubbed. He had to be persecuted. He had to be falsely accused. But like David, Jesus never took matters into his own hands. He waited on God. He trusted that his father would make all things right in his own time. And like David, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. How many times by Satan? Three times. Chapter 24, chapter 25, chapter 26. In the wilderness, three temptations. Parallel to the same three temptations that Jesus experienced by Satan in the wilderness. And like David, Jesus didn't take vengeance on his enemies when he had the opportunity to do so. And quite frankly, had the right to. And thank God he didn't. David was tempted to establish his kingdom by bloodshed. And Jesus comes to his kingdom through bloodshed. But it's not the bloodshed of his enemies. It's his own blood. The The blood he sheds for his kingdom is his very own. If Jesus had come to his kingdom the way Peter proposed, hey, grab your sword. Let's put an end to this. Well, we would be put an end to as well, and there would be no good news to speak of. No gospel for us. No savior for us. So who are we in this story? Well, in this story, we're Saul. We, the human race, each of us has usurped Jesus' throne, and we're the ones trying to kill him. We're all represented in that throng in Jerusalem that Friday afternoon crying out, crucify him. We're also Nabals, strutting around like kings, ungrateful to God for his kindness, despising and rebuffing his goodness and living as if me, mine, are all that matters. Who's the picture of Jesus in these chapters? Abigail. Abigail's the closest picture we get of Jesus, a wise discerning sage who rides in on a donkey, humbles herself, takes all the blame for what happened on herself, though she's innocent, offers a meal of peace, which happens to be a meal of lamb, by the way, and by her bravery and sacrifice, purchases salvation for many. Jesus, the true king, Refused to take vengeance on us. Dying for us instead. Jesus did more than just spare us like David spared Saul. Jesus actually died in our place so that we could be forgiven. David merely let Saul go. Jesus refused to be let go. For us. And for our salvation. All the way to the cross. All the way to the tomb. Now some of you need to know this king. Dear ones, if... There is a better king for you to submit to. I would encourage you to find him, but you won't. A king who will love you and lay his life down for you and intercede for you in the midst of all your temptation to take life into your own hands, but will keep you in his in the midst of it. He's the true king, and instead of taking vengeance on you, he offers forgiveness to you. Will you receive that for yourself this morning? Will you do that? You can do that today. 
Kids, you can do that. Teenagers, you can do that. Receive this king who will not kill you, who will save you. He's a much better king than we are of our own lives. And dear Christian brother or sister, where do we need to trust God and wait? Where are we tempted to run ahead of him, to take matters into our own hands? Where do we need to stop trying to control the circumstances and make things work out just the way we want to? Will you just trust him? Will you wait on him? Will you respond to him? Can you say, Jesus, you have loved me enough to come through for me. I will trust you, surrender to your will, respond only to you. I'm not going to respond to those who mistreat me with mistreatment, whether they be a boss or a spouse or a friend. I'm going to respond to you. Knowing that putting matters into your hands is the best place to place all of my matters. In fact, it's the best place to place our entire lives. May the Lord help us to do just that. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for these chapters that point us to both the faith of David and the fact that David is not our future hope. Lord, we marvel at the ways you enabled him to respond, and we want to learn from his example of trusting you and waiting on you and in the midst of temptation and difficulty, refusing to take life into his own hands knowing that his life was in your hands. We also see his failures. We also see ourselves in those failures, and we see ourselves in Saul, and we see ourselves in Nabal. We thank you for our greater Abigail, who intercedes for us in the midst of our foolishness and gives us an inheritance that someone else earned, that our son of David earned for us. David had earned everything that he received, and Abigail gave it to him. We've earned nothing that we received. But everything our greater David has, has earned, we have received by grace. And we celebrate that this morning. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for treating us with such contraconditional mercy and love, so against who we are by nature. May we love as you have loved us, loving others the way they don't deserve, caring for others the way they don't deserve, showing love and kindness to people who have shown us nothing but the opposite. Lord, help us. We need grace. We need to stay close to Jesus. We need to be full of your spirit to respond in such a way. So we pray that you would enable us to do it. All for your glory in the church, all for your glory in our lives, all for the display of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, brothers and sisters.